Um, let's pray as we come to God's word. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you so much uh, for this passage from Romans 8 uh, and the hope that it gives us, the hope that there is something much greater than life on this earth uh, in store for us. Uh, and we pray that you would speak to us through your spirit and that you would encourage us that uh, encourage us to wait, to wait patiently and to know and to have hope that there is something better coming. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're starting a two-week series um, this week on Advent. Advent is the time leading up to Christmas. And the first couple of weeks of Advent are looking at Jesus' return, Jesus' second coming. And then the next two weeks are looking at Jesus' first coming, which of course is Christmas, coincides with Christmas. So today, a lot, uh, in keeping with the theme of Jesus' return, we're looking at a passage that talks about our future, our future with Jesus. Now, I hate waiting, I don't know about you, and I hate shopping as well. Yeah, oh, preach it, brother. For me, the combination of the two is lethal. Sometimes, out of a misguided sense of obligation, I get dragged along to Westfield or wherever it is, to some such place where my wife Julie insists on taking me shopping. And then come to the dreaded words, just wait here, dear, while I pop into Big W. I'll only be a minute. Well, you know how the story ends. I know from bitter experience that eons of endless waiting are in store for me. I think part of my brain is telling me that I'm going to be stuck there in this nightmarish eternal shopping expedition, left to rot without coffee, without internet or food. More seriously though, I did find myself waiting for months uh, in limbo, we, we were on the mission field in East Asia and we had to return from there and we couldn't go back there. And uh, we were caught in this, um, in this time of waiting. And that was back in 2013. We discovered in, in November 2012 that, that we couldn't go back to East Asia. And we were devastated. It was followed by months of waiting to hear of new opportunities. Uh, potential new openings for a place to go where we could serve. But for ages there seemed to be nothing. Eventually we heard about some openings in Taiwan. We looked into it and things started to fall in place. And then finally an agreement was struck between our sending agency CMS and Team Taiwan who received us. A decision was made. We knew where we were headed. Finally, we had a goal, a finishing line. We still had to wait, but now it was different because we knew where we were headed. We knew what the goal was. We knew where the road was leading. It made no, all the difference knowing that there was something at the end of it, that we would finally reach our goal of getting back onto the mission field. Our passage today is also about waiting. But it's also waiting for something that has an end to it. In Romans 8, Paul tells us that our future with God, the glory to come, he calls it, 
is worth the wait. And we can be confident of that, that future because of something that's happened in the past. Something that we've looked at in the last couple of weeks, that God gave his son to die for us on the cross. And Paul goes on to say, because of that world-changing event, we can be confident that while we wait, none of the troubles and pain of this life can ever separate us from God's love. Well, that's where, we, that's where we're heading today. Um, and as, so as we come to our passage in our first section, Paul starts off by saying that the troubles and pains of this life are very real. But what we're waiting for, what he calls glory, is so good that it makes our suffering now fade into the background. So in verses 18 to 23, Paul introduces this idea of waiting, not waiting for Godo. I'll explain that in a minute, what that means, but we're waiting for glory. As we wait, we face suffering, says in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now the Bible is very realistic about what this life is like, isn't it? It doesn't hide the fact that life is full of pain and suffering. They're part of reality living on this earth. To be human is to suffer physical weakness. We get sick and psychological and emotional struggles are part of life as well. Loneliness, loss of loved ones, and on top of that, we're also told that Christians suffer for their belief in Jesus. In fact, that's what Paul has in view here where he's encouraging the people, the Romans, the people he's writing to, not to, to, to keep their suffering in perspective. They're suffering as Christians. Now, in this country, we don't face torture or death for being a Christian. But we may face ridicule and rejection because of our faith. Our friends thinking we're weird. Perhaps family members opposing you coming to church. Suffering comes in all shapes and sizes. There's no escaping it. The reason for that is that we are part of a fallen world. From Genesis chapter 3, right at the beginning of the Bible, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, the whole of humanity is under a curse. And Paul tells us that that curse affects the whole of creation, not just human beings, the whole of, of the created order. Have a look at verse 19. Creation waits along with us. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Subjected to frustration, in bondage to decay. Now we don't have to look very far to see that in our world, do we? Just recently we had those devastating fires in Queensland 
And then before that, even worse fires in California. Huge parts of Africa are being, are being swallowed up by the Sahara Desert. Everywhere we see the devastating effects of climate change. It's all part of the curse. Adam was told that the land itself would be cursed because of what he did to be thrown out of the garden. And we're still feeling the effects of that today. And it can all be pretty depressing. Worrying about what kind of a world we're going to leave for our kids. And sometimes we can't even see that far. Sometimes our, our, our suffering is so intense, it so overwhelms us that we can't see beyond the horizon. We can't see beyond our own struggles to get through the stress of work or the pain of illness or the isolation of depression and mental struggles. But Paul says that there's a bigger picture than that puts all these things in perspective. He says the glory that will be revealed in us is going to make our struggles fade away by comparison. When we understand where it is that we're headed, when we get a picture of our ultimate purpose, we'll be able to wait for what's to come. It's a bit like running a marathon. I've had the misfortune of running three marathons and believe me, they're all painful. The only thing that kept me knowing, going was knowing that there was a finishing line eventually. Um, getting over that finishing line. I didn't get going to get a prize because coming 2000th or whatever it is, you don't get a prize. But it's, it's the satisfaction of achieving something, to, to, to actually run that race and finish. I had a purpose. That's what kept me going. It's not like waiting for Godot. I don't know if you've heard of the play by that name, but there's it, a guy called Samuel Beckett, I think he was French, wrote it about 65 years ago. And it's still amazingly popular for such an old play. The play is about two men, Vladimir and Estragon, waiting for someone called Godot. No one knows who Godot is, no one's seen him. Neither of them are sure themselves if they know who Godot is. But they're pretty sure that they've got the right place and the right time. And they're just waiting. It's a bleak, gloomy scene. All there is is these two guys, two, two other guys come and go as well. But they're the main characters. And there's a dead tree and then that's it. Just a, a stark, gloomy stage scene. Now, Godot never comes. The whole play is them waiting. There's not much action. But he never comes. They wait one day, two days. Neither of them knows why they're waiting. They talk about the pointlessness of waiting, pointlessness of what they're doing. They even think about suicide. But they can't do anything about it because they haven't got anything to kill themselves with. Pretty depressing stuff. Still, Godot doesn't come. At the end of the, end of the play, Godot still hasn't come. And they say, we should go home, there's no point in waiting. But they just stand there and the final curtain falls with them just sitting there. No Godo, no movement, nothing. For Vladimir and, Vladimir and Estragon, 
Waiting is unbearable because they don't know the point of it. They don't know why they're waiting. They don't know how long they're going to wait. There's no point. One of the reasons the play is so popular is that people have made the connection between the play and their pointlessness and the apparent pointlessness of life here on earth. For so many people, they don't see a purpose. They're waiting, waiting, waiting. They don't know what for. But Paul insists that as God's people, we aren't waiting for God. We're not pointlessly suffering life here on earth. There's something worth waiting in store, and that's our future glory. Well, what is this glory that Paul's talking about? Glory in the Bible is closely associated with who God is, with his character, his perfection, his greatness. When Jesus predicted his own death on the cross, he said in John chapter 12, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He had in view how the, on the cross, and we saw it a couple of weeks ago, it would reveal who Jesus is as King and Saviour of the world. And that was his glory. And so when Paul says that glory will be revealed in us in verse 18, he has in mind, I think, that when we are with Jesus, we reflect that glory of God and of his son Jesus. It's a little bit like, like a solar panel. You know, on a, on a hot day, a solar panel is, is almost blindingly bright um, because it reflects the sun. We reflect Jesus' glory. We will reflect his glory when we are with him forever. But there's another aspect to glory. As well as reflecting God's glory, we'll actually have a glory of our own. Now, on this earth, we're struggling with our weak, decaying bodies and we don't feel very glorious. But there will come a day where... We'll have perfect bodies. Right now, I'm struggling with the fact that my I'm probably never going to run another marathon, but I'm running half marathons, but I'm not going to get faster. It's all downhill from here. A little bit depressing. We, we face the fact that we have um, ageing, decaying bodies, but there will come a day when we will have perfect, glorified bodies. The new creation that we look forward to. It isn't the popular idea of us sitting around floating on clouds, playing harps. C.S. Lewis talks about the new creation being more real than anything else that we have on earth. And he says that what we have now is just a shadow land. It's just a pale reflection of what is to come, of what we can look forward to in the new creation. In, Paul, in verse 19, Paul says that the creation awaits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. That's us. Sons and daughters of God. How glorious that is. That's who we'll be. 
Right now, we're only half of who we should be. Right now, we're twisted and marred by sin and decay and death and illness. But a day is coming when we'll be perfect. A day is coming when we'll be fully human, where we'll be who we were created to be. Isaiah says, gives a picture of what creation will be like in the new creation because the new creation will renew not only human beings but it will renew the whole of creation as well. Listen to these words, or you can look on the overhead, these words from Isaiah. Wrong way. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 6. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. Beautiful picture, isn't it? That's our future as well. It's a future worth waiting for, waiting for glory. Paul then goes on to say that this hope of our future glory is a powerful thing. In our next section, verses 24 to 27. Verse 24, in this hope we were saved. Notice how it's past tense. We were saved. By believing in this future with Jesus in the new creation, because of his death and resurrection, we have already been saved. In other words, it's the hope we have from believing the gospel. Without hope, life becomes unlivable. George Bernard Shaw was a famous playwright and author um, from earlier this century. Uh, He was also a well-known atheist and free thinker. And this is what he had to say. He had some very interesting things to say at the end of his life. Have a look with me. The science to which I pin my faith, is bankrupt. Its councils, which should have established the millennium, led instead directly to the suicide of Europe. I believed them once. In their name, I helped to destroy the faith of millions of worshippers in the temples of a thousand creeds. And now they look at me and witness the great tragedy of an atheist who has lost his faith. At the end of his life, Shaw's conclusion was that his view of science, which left no room for God, no room for the miraculous, no room for anything besides living and dying in this world, he saw that it led to hopelessness. Even atheists through the ages have ended up inventing a hope because they can't live in a world without meaning, where we just live and die and rot in the ground. But in Romans 8, Paul wants us to know that our hope is a real hope. It's not based on a kind of desperate leap in the dark because life is unbearable without it. It's the certain knowledge of our future with Jesus. It's a certain future because of a historical event in the past that will come to in a minute. 
Well, Paul goes on to say that as we wait in hope, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Have a look at verse 26. That's because we don't know what to pray for. But God's Spirit helps us to pray. And the Spirit is also interceding for us, verse 27. What I think this is saying is that as we wait for our future in the new creation, because we are human, we are weak. We, we, we struggle in our faith. We struggle to trust God. We struggle to keep our eyes on him. And we get caught up in this world. We struggle to keep hoping. We get discouraged. But God's spirit is helping us. He's holding our hand and leading us on. Strengthening our faith, keeping our eyes on God. And that should be a great encouragement because it tells us that we're not alone. We're not in this race alone because God himself is going to lead us to the finish line. Well, Paul keeps on going in our next section, uh, our third section, 28 to 30, to reassure us that as we wait, all things work together, will work out for good in the end. Verse 28, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now in our world there's a kind of a secular version of that, isn't there? The belief that everything's going to be all right. Have you heard people say that? Yeah, it's going to be all right. Yeah, I, I, I just believe that everything's going to be all right in the end. It's really the optimist's creed. I stumbled upon a little gem in a song um, put out last year by Tim and Moe. Now, I don't know anything about contemporary music, so I don't know whether... Has anyone heard of Tim and Moe? There you go, blank faces, just like... Yeah, I, I didn't know them either. But the, um, this little ditty called Everything is Going to Be Alright. The lyrics are golden. They'll, they'll move you to tears. Let's have a listen to them. Here's a little excerpt. The future is going to be confusing. Don't let it get to you. In times like these, you know, it's hard to keep your head above the water. In times like these, you're not alone. Up to that point, they're not bad, hey? They could actually be Christian. Then they keep going. Everything's going to be all right. <clears throat> and then, flashing up in neon lights, it says, I am awesome. Everything's going to be all right. Flashing up, you are here. Everything's going to be all right. Breathe. Everything's going to be all right. Think outside the box. Everything's going to be all right. Yes to all. And then finally, everything's going to be all right, sex. It's gold, isn't it? Doesn't that instill you with hope? Well, of course it's nonsense. It's another blind leap in the dark by people who desperately need to find hope but they don't know where to find it. And people do it all the time, don't they? Because we need to tell ourselves that there's hope even if there's no reason for it. But the difference for us as believers is that there is a reason for it. We know there's a certain basis for our hope. Paul isn't taking a blind leap. 
Because what he says about God working for our good is once again based on something that's already happened in the past. Look at me. Look with me at verses 29 to 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Paul reminds us that if we love God, verse 28, if we belong to him, we were marked out to be his from the beginning. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it says that we were chosen to be his from before the creation of the world. Get your head around that. Get your head around that the reality that God knew Travis from millions and millions of years ago before the world was created. And he chose him. He chose each one of you. He predestined Dom. Pick on you. He predestined Don, Dom, to be conformed to the likeness of his son, to become like Jesus. He knew the number of hairs on each one of your heads long before you were born. He called us because he wanted us as unique individuals to be his, to, be, to reflect his glory, to be glorified, fully human beings in the new creation. Isn't that wonderful news? And notice that the final step in the process, the end of verse 30, those he justified, he also glorified. There's that glory word again. Notice here that Paul uses it in the past tense as if it's already happened. Well, in a sense, it has happened. You see, what Paul's telling us, what, what he's trying to communicate is that it is so certain that it's as certain as all those other things that he's just listed. We have been called, we have been set apart, we have been saved, we have been justified and we have been glorified. And in God's eyes, it's that certain. Our future is so real as if it's already happened. For us, that, that future may seem far off. And especially if you're struggling at the moment and life's hard, it seems a long way away. But not to God. It's a certain future, as certain as all these other things that have already happened. And we can have hope because our future is so certain. And because of all that, we're told that God works out all things for our good. So what does that actually mean? What does it mean that God works for our good anyway? Does it mean that the things I wish for all come true? Does it mean that we'll be spared sickness and death? Well, we know we're not going to be spared death. But sickness and suffering and enjoy a life of prosperity... Hold on to that thought and we'll come back to that because the last part of our passage helps us to answer that question. But before we'll get there, we'll look at the next section. 
Our last section, nothing can come between us and God. Verse 31 to 38. Paul assures us that because God is working for our good, nothing can come between us and his love. If God is for us, who can be against us? And he continues this theme of basing the certainty of our future on something that has happened in the past. How can we know God is for us? Because of what his son Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Look at verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. There's no longer any condemnation for us. No anger from God. Before we trusted in Jesus... Our sins did come between us and God. Before we knew Jesus, there was condemnation, there was anger, but not now. Not now that we know Jesus. Not now that Jesus has been to the cross for us. And more than that, that he's been raised from the dead and now sits at the right hand of the Father. That's all gone. As Paul says, Jesus has now been raised to life and intercedes for us at the right hand of God. That means that Jesus the King, with all God's authority, is on our side. He argues on our behalf. He goes into bat for us. If the King of the universe is for us, who can be against us? I think we all struggle at times to feel close to God, to feel his love. Our feelings are so changeable. If I'm tired uh, or after a big lunch, I don't, I don't feel as close to God as I do in the morning after my first coffee. Or if things are going badly, it can just be hard. It can just be hard to feel that intimacy with God. But why this truth about this historical event, the death of one man on a Roman cross, is so crucial to our faith is that it's an ironclad, dependable, unchangeable proof of God's love for us. When we're struggling, when we're sad, when we're lonely, we can look back to the cross and know that God is with us and know that he loves us. And so Paul goes on to list a whole lot of things that may threaten us, may threaten our trust that God is with us. Things that threaten to shake our confidence, hard things that come our way. And the conclusion is that none of these things, no matter how hard, are ever going to come between us and God and his love for us. I said a moment ago that this last section would help us to understand verse 28. It would help answer the question of what is God's good that is planned for us? Well, let's look at the list that, that Paul starts in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. 
we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Trouble, hardship, death, persecution, a pretty bleak list. And then Paul adds that he faces death all day long. What he's saying is that these things will come. They'll come to the Christian. We're not exempt from that. They are an an inevitable part of life. And especially the Christian life. We're not spared pain and difficulty just because we're Christian. No matter how disaster, but the point is that none of these things, no matter how disastrous and awful that they are, can ever take us away from God's love. So the good that God has in store for us, they cannot mean being delivered from difficulty. Whatever it means, it can't mean that. It doesn't mean an easy, prosperous life. No, our ultimate good is wrapped up in knowing God and being with him. Because he is the author of life and everything good, everything good in our world comes from God. Our ultimate good is getting to the finishing line and being glorified and living with Jesus forever in the new creation. That's what Paul means when he talks about everything working out for our good. Verse 28 says that all things, in all things God works for our good. He uses all things in life, all circumstances, even the hard things. In fact, I want to suggest that he uses, especially uses the hard things. He uses those things to mould us, to shape us, to make us more like Jesus, to develop hope in us, perseverance, patience, to help us rely not on ourselves but on God. To put it another way, our glory actually grows out of our suffering. Again, to go back to um, the running a marathon illustration. Running a marathon is painful. In the middle of it, I tell myself, Marshall, why are you so stupid? Why did you ever enrol for this race in the first place? But the reward of finishing grows out of the pain of running it. Does that make sense? It's directly related to how hard it is running the race. It is so rewarding because it involves so much sweat and tears to finish it. God uses our present sufferings to prepare us for the glory that is to come. As we suffer, it forces us to turn to God. It enables us to grow in character, patience, perseverance, hope. When I think about the times that I've grown most in my relationship with God, I think without exception those times have been times of significant hardship. And perhaps that's your story as well. 
to finish off, I just want to spend a minute thinking about what this passage means for us. I want to suggest two things that we can take out from today. One is to learn to suffer well. Suffering is an art that we're not very good at as Western Christians. Because we're so wealthy, we're used to getting what we want, using money to buy us comfort and security. And that creates an expectation that it's normal for life to go smoothly. We take it for granted that we'll have, we'll have pretty good health, at least for a number of years, and that we'll be, have everything we need. And on top of that, we'll have money and time and the ability to do what we want, to do our hobbies, go on holidays, enjoy ourselves. For us, that's normal. But when things go pear-shaped, my first response is to complain to God and anyone else who'll listen, why, God? What are you doing? We lose our visa. Why, God? Why have we had to come back from the mission field? Why, God? What are you doing? I don't know what it is for you, um, what it is now or has been in the past. Perhaps family relationships breaking up. Perhaps parents who don't like you to coming to church. Or sickness or loneliness. Perhaps it's a job that's a burden and a drag. God, what are you doing? But what we've seen today is that suffering is what we should expect. It doesn't take God by surprise. It doesn't come between us and God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God because Jesus went to the cross so that we are his forever. In fact, God may send you suffering as part of his plan to mould you and shape you and make you more like Jesus. The second thing I think we can learn from this passage is the importance of waiting. Now, I've already said that I'm, I'm terrible at waiting um, and I, I'll do anything to avoid it. And, and I think most of us do struggle with it. Uh, and again, I actually think our culture is working against us. We live in a culture where we're told we can have everything now. Why wait for that new plasma TV? Even if you don't have the money, you can put it on credit. You don't have to wait. That phone upgrade, that shiny new car, you can have it now. Aussies have a huge level of personal debt because we're not prepared to wait for what we want. We get it on credit. And I think that can flow over to our Christian life as well. We want to experience God's blessing and power in its fullness. And yes, Jesus did promise life, the abundant life here and now. That's real and that's something that we should, we should look for and, and pray for. We should look for a close, intimate walk with God. But we need to know that before we die or before Jesus returns, whichever comes first, we will only ever have those things in part. 
we will only ever be, we will still be in our mortal bodies and struggle with pain and decay and, and weakness and sin. We should understand that the best is yet to come and we shouldn't put all our eggs in this basket and think that this is what we have here and now is all that there is. We shouldn't be content with this life as our true goal because what we were created for is our perfected, glorified new bodies in the new creation living face to face with King Jesus. Again, C.S. Lewis used an analogy to describe the fact that we often too easily pleased. We become too content with this life and we lose our longing for what's to come. He says it's like being content making mud pies in a dirty puddle when we can have a holiday at the beach. Have a look, just to finish off, let's have a look at the beautiful picture of the future that is in store for us in the new creation from Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord, for that picture of the, the new creation. Thank you, Father, that our suffering, no matter how intense it is now, will fade away. Thank you that it's not the end of the story. Thank you, Father, that you know suffering that we go through now is wasted, that it's all for, it's all part of your plan to make us more like Jesus and there will come a day when it will end thank you Father that that end point of our glory of, of us being with Jesus forever in the new creation is as certain it's as certain as Jesus dying on the cross in the past and we pray that we might we might trust in that and put our hope in that and we pray it in Jesus name Amen